Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus as he builds a movement of misfits traveling through Galilee, bringing good news to the ordinary, broken, confused, and undeserving. Who will choose to follow him? How will he react in the face of conflict? What is the good news of God's kingdom really about? Let's pick up where we left off. Well, hi, everyone. We're going to be in Mark 2.23 today, and so you can find your way there in your Bible or device. Uh, Last week, I told you that we're in the midst of five conflict narratives in Mark. And today, we're going to cover number four, as Jesus' disciples are accused of plucking grain on the Sabbath. And this opposition to Jesus is building and building. There are a series of these confrontations that are going to soon erupt into a plot against his life. And the reason that this is escalating is because Jesus keeps making significant statements about who he is and what he's here to do. And so last week, we looked at how he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He was seemingly throwing the doors of his kingdom wide open to anyone and everyone. It was making the religious leaders very uncomfortable. And and frankly, it makes some of us uncomfortable too, especially in our deeply fragmented society right now. It's hard for us to, to release our brains from always evaluating who's in and who's out. In fact, there are two main approaches to kind of drawing those lines. Let's call them legalism versus license. License says basically anything goes. I can do whatever I want. Don't tell me uh, you know, what to do. I've, don't tell me I've got sin in my life. Don't tell me how to live my life. God loves me just the way I am. And so, so you can do whatever you want. I can live however I want to live. God's okay with me just as I am. So so these people err on the side of license. Anything goes. And yet Paul would come along and say, well, wait a minute. You're abusing the idea of grace. Like, I'll give you an example. If you you cheat on your wife and, and she does the incredible work of forgiveness to take you back into the marriage. You don't turn around and you say, oh, this is great. I I can cheat on her whenever I want, over and over again. No, you're abusing the relationship. You're abusing that act of forgiveness and grace. That's why Paul says, should we go on sinning so that grace will increase? Certainly not, he says. Now, on the other side of the coin are the legalists. And legalists say, I am going to strictly define what true faith looks like. This is what morality looks like, and here's the checklist. And if you don't keep my checklist, you're out, and you're on your way to hell. And so we won't drink or smoke or chew or go, go with girls who do kind of thing. And so these two sides play off each other all the time. If a person who lives in license, they, they do whatever they want, uh, you don't dare tell them that an area of their life is unbiblical, sinful, or wrong, or unwise, and they'll say, ah, you're a Pharisee, you're a legalist, you, you are the problem, you are going to hell. And the legalist will then look at the misbehaving free-for-all person and compare them to this self-made checklist of right behaviors and wrong behaviors, and they go, license, you are a worldly pagan, you are not even saved, you're the one going to hell. And both sides are in error. They they seem like opposites of each other, but they're really very similar because both of them stand in opposition to the true gospel of grace. Both of them put themselves in the place of God. Both of them assume that God is exactly like them. And so whether you travel the path of legalism or you travel the path of license, you come to the same inevitable conclusion, which is denying the power of the true gospel. Now, today, Jesus is picking a fight with the legalists. 
And the issue at play is the Sabbath. We're gonna talk quite a bit about the Sabbath in just a moment. But, but you need to understand first that the Sabbath is just the, the latest battlefield while the bigger war is about the arrival of Jesus' new kingdom. Remember last week we said the key interpretive uh, verse and metaphor for these conflicts is new wine which can't fit in the old wineskins and the new patch which pulls apart the old garment when it's sewn on. It's a new gospel of grace and this new gospel of grace is not gonna fit into the old systems of man-made rule-keeping. And so let's look at Mark 2, 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the the, the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, there it is. There, that last little phrase is the point. The point is who Jesus is and what he has authority over, including the Sabbath. And so here's my big idea today. Jesus is Lord of everything, so you can rest easy. See, see, the point of this conflict is to show us he is Lord over everything. The theme of Mark that we're highlighting this week is the Son of God and Son of Man theme, where Jesus is slowly revealing who he is. And here, he's the Lord of everything, even the age-old practice of Sabbath. Now, I want to get specific here. The the legalists, in this case, the Pharisees, had invented 39 laws around what people could and could not do on the Sabbath. They included laws about carrying and burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing. Okay, you get the picture. I just gave you 18. There are 21 more until we reach 39. And so when the disciples were picking heads of grain, this was allowed according to the law of God. They weren't stealing anything. In fact, Matthew adds the detail. They were picking grain because they were hungry, but Mark focuses on the conflict. So, but even though this, this act was legal according to God's law and legal according to the law of the land, according to the Pharisees, it was not allowed on the Sabbath because it was considered reaping. So, so by the way, Jesus also broke a rule about traveling on the Sabbath just for good measure. But, but the issue here is the Sabbath. So his initial response is he, he gives them a quote about David. And this is a biblical reference to 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 6. It's given in the technical form of rabbinic debate. And so he was debating the rabbis on their own turf and in their own vernacular. And so he gives them kind of the book answer that they were looking for. But then he throws down the real reason. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And oh, by the way, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, you guys have taken something that was meant as a gift from God, the Sabbath, and you turned it into rules. I gave you a gift of rest and you made it into chains. And by the way, people still do this with spiritual practices. When it comes to reading the Bible and praying and serving, and they're like, man, I have to do these things. When the point isn't the practices themselves, the point is that by doing these practices, you get to Jesus. 
And so these commands of God were given not to oppress people, but to set people free. And that if we would honor the heart of what God is after in his commands, then we would be set free. But too often people take these commands and they make them chains. And so the Pharisees are thinking, you know, by what authority are you redefining our views on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, well, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. To be clear, I was part of a three-man committee that decided that we were gonna do it this way. I'm the one who was there when, when people were made to live, created to live in this rhythm of six on and one off. And so trust me in this, this is the way it's supposed to work. So God had instituted the Sabbath and now Jesus claims ownership of it. Again, he's claiming to be equal to God. And you can see why the religious leaders are getting so fired up. Now, I wanna pause here and just point out three markers of legalism. I think it's gonna be instructive for us. And so here's the first. Legalists add their own rules to the scriptures. So, so the mindset goes, God gave some rules, but he didn't give enough. And, and so we'd better add our own rules to God's rules. We need more checklists. And this gets done by denominations, it gets done by traditions, it gets done by individual churches and religious leaders and authors. And, and so all of a sudden, you've got the scriptures, plus you need to have this other whole list of rules. These rules don't always just inform us of what the Bible already says, instead they often add to it or they expand on it and then they make it end up, they end up making it more important than the Bible itself. The second marker is that once this new list of rules has been established, legalists appoint themselves as judge over others. So the next step is that legalists become uber passionate about their own interpretations and then they judge everyone else by their strict adherence. And so you have Calvinists ranting about those who are not five-point tulip loyalists or you have charismatic types who say, if you don't speak in tongues, you know, you're probably not even going to heaven or, or the, the Bible stance on sexuality. If you, if you don't believe what I believe, on this issue down to the letter, you are a heretic. I don't care what you believe about anything else. My interpretation of this one thing becomes the litmus test of who's in and who's out. And again, this is different than holding firmly to Christian orthodoxy, which I fully support. It is also different from holding each other accountable for what they believe. That's all still very, very necessary, but legalism takes secondary beliefs and makes them primary and then appoints myself judge and jury over everyone. The third marker is that legalists strictly hold everyone to their own rules of choice. This is one of those things that's much easier to see in other people than it is to see in yourself. So it's easy for Protestants to look at Catholics and to say, hey, the whole no meat on Friday thing during Lent is weird. And praying the rosary and confession booths, like none of that stuff is in the Bible. They're add-ons and you seem to be holding to them very tightly. And Catholics will look back at Protestants and think, well, hey, your casual approach to God is just insulting to God. Like your casual clothes, your casual music, your casual liturgy. Don't you think God deserves better than all that? See, it's not just the Pharisees. Christians have a tendency toward legalism. I recently saw some cringy excerpts from the Bob Jones University Handbook from 1995. This is a Christian college. This is just 30 years ago. It's not ancient history. Listen to these rules. All women students are to wear hose, pantyhose, at all times. Jean skirts and jumpers are permitted after 7 p.m. on weekdays, on Saturdays, and on outings. Jean jackets are permitted on outings only. Split skirts, not culottes, 
may be worn to weekend ball games. I mean, that's pretty specific, bro. So, so what about the guys? Well, here, here's some of the guys. Men are to have their hair cut so the back is tapered and does not come over the collar or ears. Sideburns are to be no longer than the lower opening of the ear. Mustaches and beards are not permitted. In front, the hair must not fall lower than two fingers widths above the eyebrows. I'm like, oh, this whole hair thing would be hard for me. I just gotta be honest because I can grow a full head of hair in like 20 minutes. I've always been a fast grower. I'm like, I'm like Chewbacca. I, I get my hair cut and with just the hair that's laying on the floor when I'm done, like you could knit sweaters for a small elementary school. A anyway, all, all the rules are cringy. But, but here's what I've noticed in recent years. It's not just Christians who are legalists. Legalism has bled over into social issues and politics as well. Just look at how... So many people lost their minds over the rules, either for or against, during COVID. It reminded me that for many people, their political or social beliefs are actually more of a religion than anything else. People have drawn clearer lines around certain secular or political ideologies, and then they determine that someone is in or out, if, or even if they're worthy of associating with, or if they need to be canceled based on how they believe about that one or those couple particular issues. And there are code words that are used, certain symbols that are used that will be determined, that will determine if I can associate with you or not. So right now, say the word Israel or Palestine. There is a slaughter of innocent people and, and we're suddenly taking sides over it. Now, it's a deeply, deeply complex issue. And we're so sure of our position that not only do I disagree with you, but if you have another opinion than mine, it's not just that we have different opinions, it's that you are evil and you must be silenced. It's political legalism. Now on a lighter note, I wanna just test this out. If you wanna test out if there's political legalism, get in a huge diesel engine pickup truck with a gun rack in the back window, drive it up to an outdoor yoga class, <laughs> Leave your truck running with Joe Rogan podcast playing over the radio while eating red meat in one hand, smoking a cigarette in the other, and littering your wrappers. And, and, and just see if the downward dog Pharisees don't come out. <laughs> or, or, or take your little electric car with all the coexist bumper stickers on the back and, and NPR playing on the radio and drive up to an NRA meeting while drinking oat milk or green shakes or whatever and talking about systemic racism and see if the mega Pharisees don't go crazy. Guys, there are a lot of legalists these days. And if we can convince ourselves that our ideas can't even ever be challenged, it feels safe for us, but it's actually incredibly dangerous. And so Jesus is coming after the legalists, the Pharisees, and he says, this new kingdom of grace is not gonna fit neatly into your carefully constructed rules. Now, I wanna spend our remaining time drilling down on this one phrase in verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God says, hey, you know what? Take a day off. And you'd think people would be like, that's a good idea, God. And then the legalists come along and say, oh, you know what? This, this good idea needs, to, to make it an even better idea, it needs a rule book. And you're like, really, a rule book for a day off? And they say, yes. And then you, you need to memorize the rules. And then you need to obey the rules. And, then, and we're going to punish you if you disobey even the tiniest of rules. 
and the whole point is supposed to be a day off and you've made it into a lot of work. And, and now I actually have a to-do list and a job description for my day off. Like you've ruined everything. I was gonna take a nap, but now I've gotta figure out whether or not I'm obeying the nap rules for my day off. So, so let me talk about the backstory of the Sabbath that Jesus is the inventor of, and now he claims to be the Lord over. Now, some of you have heard me preach on the Sabbath before, but, but I'm not sure we could talk about this enough in our workaholic culture. Wayne Mueller's great quote says it this way. He says, how did we get so terribly lost in a world saturated with striving and grasping, yet somehow absent of joy and delight? I suggest it is this. We have forgotten the Sabbath. So where did the Sabbath idea come from? Well, the, the OG Sabbath goes all the way back to the creation account in Genesis 2, 2, and 3, where it says, this, it says it this way. It says, He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work. Now, Whenever you make an excuse for not taking a Sabbath day of rest because you don't have enough time or you're too busy or you're too important or whatever, I want you to repeat these two words. God rested. God rested. We wear busyness like it's a badge of honor. And so we say things, well, I'll rest when I'm dead. Partially, I think, because the busier you are, the more important you feel. Even, even in my circles, I hear pastors saying, the devil doesn't take a day off, so how can I? And I just want to respond, well, the devil loses. And, you know, the devil is the devil, so you might want to pick a better role model to base the rhythms of your life off of. So, so the word Sabbath just means to cease. And biblically and historically, it's one 24-hour period each week that is devoted to rest from your work, to be unavailable for the world so that you can be available for God. And on one hand, the Sabbath is an act of humility. It's a way of reminding yourself that you're not God. That if you stop producing for, for a day, the, the world is going to go on just fine without you. On the other hand, Sabbath is an act of rebellion. It's a way to, to stand against the prevailing value of, of our society that says your worth is tied to your productivity. And even though God demonstrated this idea of Sabbath on the, in the creation account, it was never mentioned again in the Bible until after slavery in Egypt. So, so remember, God had brought his people out of slavery. They had just endured 400 years of brutality. Egyptian overlords had forced them to make bricks. In slavery, the Jewish people didn't have a name. They had a number. And their identity and only value in the world came from the number of bricks that they could produce. They, they worked on a very strict quota. And over the years, the Egyptians kept adding expectations. Instead of just making bricks, now they added gathering straw to their workload, and they still had to meet the same production numbers. In fact, we, we read about a scene where the, the, the foreman, the slave driver, comes and he says, you Hebrew slaves, you're worshiping your God, but I think you're just being lazy. And then he says this in Exodus 5. He says, go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And so they were punished for their religion. Demands were merciless. And the Hebrew slaves kept crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? And for generation after generation, how long, O Lord? And, and you know the story. Finally, God intervened. 
And Moses was chosen to lead his people. And they escaped through the, the parted Red Sea. And Pharaoh and his armies were swallowed up behind them. And God took his people into the desert. And there he cared for them. And he fed them. And he provided for them. And he gave them drink. And he began the long process, listen, of, of breaking the yoke of slavery off their backs. Helping them to understand that they had a name and not just a number. That, that their true identity was children of God and not slaves of Pharaoh. And one of the gifts God gave them along the way was what we call the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. These ten rules, these ten guidelines that would reorient them to life with God and life with each other. Instructions about how their identity as his children should get lived out in real life. And so if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first three commandments, they deal with their relationship with God. They are vertical commandments. Have no other gods before me. Make no man-made images. Don't use the Lord's name inappropriately. And then the last six commandments, they dealt with their relationship with other people, their horizontal commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder each other. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie about your neighbor. Don't get grabby, you know, with other people's stuff. Now, if you're counting three plus six, that's only nine commands. Three vertical, six horizontal. But embedded in the middle is commandment number four. It's the longest commandment. It's the most comprehensive commandment. And it's placed in the middle is not, his placement in the middle is not an accident. Commandment number four provides a bridge between healthy vertical relationship with God and healthy horizontal relationship with our fellow humans. It is the longest commandment by far and it's profound in its prominence, especially when seen in the light of 400 years of slavery under Pharaoh. Exodus 20, eight through 11 says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or or the sojourner who's within your gates. For, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that's in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So remember, Sabbath hasn't been mentioned from creation until right now, after slavery, which gives us a clue that this command is about establishing identity. What does it mean to belong to God? And he essentially says, one day a week, you're gonna stop making bricks. Why? Because you need to know that your worth goes much deeper than what you can produce. You need to stop and realize that you are his child. Once a week, you need to press pause on the madness and just be, be in his presence, be in his holiness, be fully yourself. Now, this is radically different from what the Israelites had known. And it's radically different, by the way, from what we know too. God says, in order for your soul to be healthy, you must regularly rest. Life is designed to be lived in a rhythm of work and rest, hustle and renewal. But our 24-7 culture has demanded that you never slow down. And so we live our lives on the run, squeezing God in where we can. And it means that often in the hurry, we, we start to live off of other people's faith because we don't have time to cultivate our own. It means we multitask so much that we're, that while we're trying to do three things at once, we're never present in any one place. It means that while we are always on our way to the next thing, few of us ever make time to develop our own direct relationship with God. And so the result is most people ignore the Sabbath. In fact, for many of you, you've never even thought about it. You've never even considered one day a week of rest and focus on your relationship with God. 
It's the one commandment in the 10 that, that we've become most comfortable breaking. But, but the opposite mistake can also happen. People can get so fired up about the Sabbath and then get super legalistic about it. They won't mow the lawn, they won't play music, they won't lift a finger, and they take what was supposed to be a gift and like the Pharisees, turn it into rules. But we do need some guidelines. And so with, with credit to two friends, Merle Meese and Dan White, who have done a lot of work and practice on, on this, let me present to you a framework for a great Sabbath. Now, before I give you the four sides of this frame, let me just say that the key first step is to figure out the when. When is your best shot at a 24-hour period? Or maybe it's just a three-hour period to start. See, for many of you, it, it, may, it may be Sunday is the best day for Sabbath. In the Jewish culture, it was sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. I try to usually find a, a Friday to Saturday 24-hour block because I usually have a gig on Sundays. Parents of young families, if you want to take a baby step, either include your kids in Sabbath or maybe you can work out a kid swap program. One week they go to one family, the other week to the next family so that you can take a Sabbath every other week. So, so, so we can take baby steps and we need to avoid legalism, but let's at least agree that outright disobedience to the, to the command of the Sabbath is not an option. So here's the first side of the, the frame of a great Sabbath. It's to unplug in our society, the act of unplugging is an act of rebellion. Simply disconnect. You can go to your phone, you can just disable a whole bunch of stuff. You can disable notifications of certain apps. I, I tend to keep my phone on, but disable both email and Teams. This is one of the ways that in our context, we can cease from work, cease from noise, cease from technology, cease from the to-do list and from solving problems. Walt Brueggemann says it this way. He says, on the Sabbath, the practical benefits of technology are set aside, and one tries to stand in the cycle of natural time without manipulation or interference. I love that. My friend Dan tries to incorporate the discipline of unplugging a little bit each day of the week, usually from 6 to 8 p.m. every night, just to unplug, set it in a basket. The second side of the frame is this, is to gather. One of the ancient components of Sabbath was that it was a time of communal feasting. Friends and family gathering together around the table as an expression of celebration. And embedded in this idea of a, of a shared table was not just with family, but with friends too. And it's, it's the idea that because no one is working, also no one is competing against each other to produce. We're, we're all equal in our rest. And so in addition to, to resting, it becomes an occasion for, for almost reimagining our society through a lens other than coercion and competition and, and more toward what does solidarity look like between all people? The Bible says that Jesus came eating and drinking. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. When Jesus ate and drank with sinners like we saw last week, the Pharisees thought it was a secular act, but in fact, Jesus saw it as a sacred act. I have a friend who gathers with his life group on the Sabbath every week for a meal. But, but the, the rule is that they're welcome to invite anyone that they want to. It's an open table. And so they have lots of food and they have wine and each time they have a little sacred moment where they, they go around the table and they just share highs and lows from the week. It's not a super you know, spiritual thing, but he says every single time God shows up, every time there's a tear shed or a celebration hat. I just think it would be a beautiful thing for many of you who, who use Sunday for your Sabbath to share more meals together after church. Maybe make it a goal to meet somebody new at church, then immediately invite them to lunch afterward. Part of a great Sabbath is gathering in community and feasting together. Here's the third. It's to worship. 
Remember the, the beginning of that fourth command. It says, remember the Sabbath and keep it, remember what it says? Holy, keep it holy. So an intentional part of every great Sabbath is getting lost in the presence of God, worshiping him, entering his holiness. Jesus said, abide in me, remain in me. And so the Sabbath is this weekly opportunity to stay connected to Christ and to recharge spiritually. For many of you, attending church is part of that, which I would obviously encourage. <laughs> but, but what other ways can you intentionally enter his presence? What about making sure that worship music is on in the car? I like to spend a little bit more extended chair time on the Sabbath, less study and more reading and reflection. There's a practice called Lectio Divina that, that, that involves reading one short passage over and over again until something jumps out and then personalizing it and then having a conversation with God about it. It's also good to, to pray through hopes and hurts, do some journaling around those things. But a weekly Sabbath ensures that you are at the very worst, never more than six days away from a holy perspective. Here's the fourth side of the frame. It's to rest and recreate. Sabbath should be a playful space. You know, through the Old Testament, we're told that God delights in us. And this word delight in the Hebrew literally means laughing knowing. God has a laughing knowing of you, a laughing knowledge of you. God thinks of you and it makes him chuckle. He enjoys knowing you. He enjoys spending time with you. He enjoys when you, when you experience joy. And, and so the Sabbath should include recreation. And this word recreation literally means to recreate or to rebuild or to renew or restore or regenerate. And now, listen, there's a big difference between recreation and amusement. So binge watching a show all day on Netflix might amuse you, but is it really restoring your soul? Like it's important to figure out what those things are for you that bring restoration, restoring. I heard a saying one time and, and have found it to be true that those who work with their minds, Sabbath with their hands. And those who work with their hands, Sabbath with their minds. So I typically work with my mind during the week. And so things on the Sabbath, like mowing the yard and cutting wood and folding laundry, they fill me up to the brim. Kim works with her hands in construction all week. She likes to read and relax on the deck and use her mind on the Sabbath. But you need to figure out how to, how to recreate in a way that's restorative to your soul. So a framework for a weekly Sabbath involves unplug, gather, worship, and rest and recreate. Now, as I wrap up, I, I just want to acknowledge that this is going to take great intentionality. It's hard. L listen to Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, what the author of Hebrews says about the Sabbath. He says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Now listen, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. He's acknowledging here that this is not going to come easy. You're going to have to make every effort. You're going to have to work hard to rest. So I come back to our big idea and just say the only way that we can rest easy, the only way we can do this is to know down to our toes that Jesus is Lord over everything. Because while you are pausing to replenish your soul, at the same time, God is still running the universe just fine without you, by the way. <laughs> One of the things that wars against Sabbath rest is your own pride. If you go for weeks or months or maybe even years without taking a day off, you become way too convinced of your own importance. 
Sabbath is an expression of faith. It's also an expression of identity. When you Sabbath, it is a time for you to remember that ultimately your worth and value does not come from your to-do list. It doesn't come from what you get done. It doesn't come from bottom lines. It doesn't come from P&L reports. It doesn't come from your income status. It doesn't come from how far you've climbed up the ladder. It doesn't come from whether or not you've achieved inbox zero this week. Your identity comes from who you are in Jesus Christ. You are a child of God. You are beloved. You are saved. You are rescued. You are transformed, you are set apart. You are God's workmanship. You are born of God. You are alive with Christ. You are free from the laws of sin and death. You have the mind of Christ. You have a peace that passes understanding. You are chosen. You are an overcomer. You are a joint heir with Christ. Your body is a temple of the Spirit of God. You are the light of the world. You are strengthened with all power. You are not ruled by fear. And so it's easy to forget all of those things when you're on a hamster wheel. But when you pause, when you sit at his feet, when you turn off the noise, when you listen for his voice, you're reminded where your true value comes from. He is Lord over everything, and he is enough. Amen. Which brings us to our next step for today. The theme that we're highlighting is this theme of the Son of God and Son of Man. And the discipleship question that goes with this over at our website, whoisgrace.com slash mark, how does this picture of Jesus compel me to live differently? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean for your actual life? And I'd encourage you with a quick follow-up question. What small step could you take this week toward a healthy Sabbath rhythm? Love you guys.